We already heard part of this passage earlier. Mary's Magnificat. Now we're going to get the context for that by picking up verse 39 where we left off last week. Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 56. This is the word of God. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let's pray. Father, what a wonderful passage of scripture. What a powerful meeting of these two moms and their two little babies. We pray that you would bless us as we Look to your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would prepare our hearts to receive, our minds to understand, our lives to respond in faith to your word. We need to hear from you, and we need you to make your word powerful and effective in our lives for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, it is the most wonderful time of the year, right? And this time of year in our culture, we hear lots of talk about Christmas miracles and the magic of Christmas and even about Christmas faith. But I wonder if you asked like a hundred random Americans just on the street to define any of these terms, how would they define them? I'm going to give you my close approximation of how they appear to be defined by the culture. Christmas miracle. A Christmas miracle is when some unexpected good thing happens to you, right? It could be as simple as getting a close parking spot at Target. People are like, oh, there's my Christmas miracle. I got a good spot at Target, right? Or it could be as profound as waking up on Christmas morning to a fresh 
blanket of newly fallen snow. We don't get that in Maryland very often, but it happens every once in a while. We might say, oh, that's a Christmas miracle. That's how our culture uses that term loosely. You get exactly what you want for Christmas or something like that. The magic of Christmas is the way the Christmas season is supposed to make you feel to be happier, to be kinder, to be more generous. And Christmas faith? Well, Christmas faith usually involves believing really hard that something is real, and if you believe enough, then your faith will make it real. Just believe, we're told, and things will be good. Several movies even teach us that Santa Claus is powered by children's faith in him. That the more they have faith in Santa Claus, the more power he has for his sleigh, right? The more he's able to do the things, right? Uh, but that's not the kind of faith that the Bible talks about. Biblical faith, the faith that pleases God, is very, very different. Biblical faith takes God at his word. It receives what God has said and says yes and amen to it. It says it is true what God's revealed about himself, about his actions, his purposes, his promises, and believes God for what he has said, gives thanks to God, and lives as if what God has said is true and right, no matter what anyone else says to the contrary. See, so he doesn't start with what I want, and if I believe it hard enough, I can make it happen. No, it starts with what God has said, and because he is able to make it happen, we say to that, yes, it is true. Last week, we saw the best kind of Christmas faith in a biblical sense in Mary, when she responded to the message from Gabriel by saying, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She wasn't telling God what to do. She was receiving what God had told her and saying yes. In today's passage, we see the powerful reality of faith on display in this amazing meeting between four people, two moms and their two preborn sons begins with a hasty journey and a simple greeting. Verses 39 and 40. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, Gabriel had just told Mary that her cousin Elizabeth, widely known to be barren, was in her sixth month of pregnancy, in her old age. And when Gabriel leaves her, Mary arises and goes with haste. The ESV says, in those days, Mary arose. But it could also be translated as, now at that time, Mary arose. And some other translations will have that rendering. And it gets the idea that Gabriel leaves and Mary says, I got to go see Elizabeth. Because the last thing he told me was, Elizabeth is in her sixth month of pregnancy. My old cousin, she's well past childbearing years. She's always been barren. I'm going to go see her. And so she goes with haste. And this is important because this is not some weeks later or some months later. Now, she doesn't exactly get there overnight, right? The journey would have to be made on foot. It wasn't the town next door. She's going from Nazareth in Galilee down to the hill country of Judah to uh, the town where Zechariah lives with Elizabeth and so it takes a little while to get there. Maybe it's a week or two later when she arrives, maybe three weeks later. And this is important because this woman, Mary, is very, very early in her pregnancy, right? 
And she stays there. The other clue we get about time is that at the end of the passage, the last verse, Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Now, she would have stayed through the delivery of the baby and for the first few weeks after the delivery of the baby to help her with being a mom, but then she would leave. So it seems like, you know, Elizabeth was six months along when Gabriel came. Maybe by the time Mary gets there, she's closer to seven months along, all things being considered in logistics. But you've got a six or seven month pregnant lady and then a three or four week pregnant lady, maybe, right? That's, that's their meeting up. And so they've got their boys in their wombs. Now, this quick journey. Why is this such a quick journey? Well, Mary is struggling to understand. We saw that last week. She's, she's believing, right? She believes the Lord. She says, yes, let it be according to your word. But she's still struggling to understand. She says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And, and because Gabriel specifically mentioned Elizabeth as kind of the proof here, if you want to know what God can do, Elizabeth, she's old, she's been barren, she's now in her sixth month. Mary probably has two thoughts at once. One is, go help Elizabeth. You know, an older lady having a first baby, uh, it's going to be challenging, right? And so she's going to go help her. That would be not uncommon in the biblical times for family to come and move in and help you, right? Um, many of us had moms move in and help us. You know, perhaps Elizabeth is in a position where her mom's not around anymore and she can't come in and help her. So Mary goes to help. But I think Mary's also looking for confirmation and for encouragement for her faith. She believes, but she's still confused and still wondering. And so she's looking for some help for herself, for her faith. When we are struggling to believe or to understand how to accept and live in the light of God's amazing promises, it is very helpful to be around other believers. Other believers who, who've had similar experiences and who can confirm or strengthen our faith. One of the great things is when you sit down and talk to somebody and you share a burden that you're struggling with and you say, this is what I'm going through and I know that this is what God's word says, but I'm, I'm really struggling to figure out what to do and how to do this. And they say, I've been there, I've, I've been through this, let me tell you what this is like. And although Mary and Elizabeth have slightly different circumstances, Mary's pregnancy is much more miraculous than Elizabeth's, Elizabeth's is still a miracle pregnancy. And she's still having to accept this news and she's saying, yeah, it was pretty hard to believe and, and, and I wasn't sure if it was really, really gonna happen and Zechariah certainly had his doubts and yet, lo and behold, here we are six, seven months along and, and now I can feel the baby move and kick all the time and God is good, God keeps his promises and that would strengthen her faith. That's why we need to be here as church. That's why it's so sad to me that we recently reached a point, I've said this many times because it weighs on my heart heavily, where a majority of professing evangelical Christians in America have no church home. They don't belong to a church. They don't attend a church. They have no church that they belong to. Maybe you know someone like that. And let me encourage you Christmas Eve is coming up next week. Invite them. When they did a survey of people who are evangelical Christians by profession and have no church home, 
about half of them said that they would love to find a church home and that they would consider going back to church if only somebody they knew would invite them. And that's how most people end up in church. So we need community when we're struggling. We need community to strengthen our faith. We need each other. And let this time of year be an encouragement to invite your friends, invite your family members, invite them to come. Uh, don't tell them we're a perfect church. Uh, don't sell them on something other than the fact that we love each other, we love the Lord, and God is working here. So Mary hurries to her older cousin's house, and when she arrives, she does exactly what's expected. Nothing unexpected. She comes and she greets Elizabeth. But then something very unexpected happens. In verse 41, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. The very first human being to celebrate the arrival of Jesus in the flesh was the preborn John the Baptist. He heard the sound of Mary's voice and he leaped in his mother's womb. He leaped for joy. Months before he was born, John is fulfilling his God-ordained role as the forerunner of the Messiah, as he is filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, which is exactly what Zechariah was promised that he would be. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's announcing Messiah is here by jumping in his mother's womb. I don't know what that felt like. I've never been pregnant. Uh, no idea even what it feels like when a baby kicks or moves, but it must have been something. Because Elizabeth would probably be used to the normal moving of a baby at this point. She's like, whoa, he leaped for joy. That was a big one, right? And he's excited. He's excited the Messiah is, is come. The Lord is approaching. Elizabeth says, by the power of the Holy Spirit, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Joy here is actually the strongest word for joy in Greek. There's lots of related Greek words for happiness and joy. This is the strongest one. This is the one that is sometimes translated as exceeding joy or great gladness. And it almost always in the New Testament accompanies the joy of salvation. And so little pre-born baby John wasn't just a little bit glad he has a cousin to play with or something like that. He is filled with the Holy Spirit to know the Lord is approaching and he's exceedingly glad and he leaps for great joy at the presence of his Lord, even though his Lord is just a tiny embryo, right? End of that first month of pregnancy, a baby's about the size of a grain of rice, <laughs> So we're talking about a little teeny tiny preborn baby boy Jesus, and yet John is so excited that he's come to his house that he leaps for joy. And it's not just John who's rejoicing at the coming of Jesus. Elizabeth here, she expresses humility, she expresses gratitude, and she expresses great joy as she is filled with the Holy Spirit. And you know, if you were to ask pastors, Bible teachers, Bible scholars or mature Christians, who is it who makes the first Christian profession of faith? Who makes the first profession of faith in the Gospels? We've all been trained to say, it's Peter at Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16. 
But no, 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 you got to back up the clock. Some 30 years, because here, Elizabeth actually makes the first Christian profession of faith recorded in the Gospels. Because what does she say? Elizabeth's filled with the Holy Spirit. She exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. She calls Jesus my Lord. And the, the first Christian profession of faith was simply Jesus is Lord. And to say, he is my Lord, she's making that Christian profession of faith about a tiny baby. But the first word that comes out of her mouth is blessed. And if you've been paying attention, and you know me at all, I'm being very careful in how I'm pronouncing blessed and blessed. Because there are two different Greek words that underlie the same English translation. Two Greek words that both get translated the same way in English. One means someone who's blessed, who's well-off, who's favored. And, and we use it that way. We're, I'm so blessed, right? And that's the word that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes, and it's the, it's the, uh, the common word. But then there is another word that I think in the common English usage, when we say blessed, we mean someone who's special, something who's, that's honored, something that's highly thought of, right? And this is actually the word in Greek, eulogizomai, which is, we get our word eulogy from it, to speak well of. And that's the word that she says, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. In other words, highly honored and esteemed, well-spoken of are you among women and is the fruit of your womb. What does she mean by this? What she means is simply what is true and what has been true for 2,000 years, and that is Mary has a place of high esteem, of high honor, of high respect, because she, because she has been blessed by God more than anyone else. Because later, in verse 45, when she says, and blessed is she who believed, this is that word blessed, you're well off. So because she's blessed by God, and she's given this unique role in the history of redemption, we say that she is blessed, she's well spoken of. And so Mary does rightly have a place of honor and respect and privilege among all women who have ever lived because she was the mother of the Son of God. That's a high privilege. No other woman's ever been given that privilege of being the mother of the Son of God, of having the Son of God who actually, his humanity came from her humanity. He, was, he had his human sub substance from her and his human subsistence from her. She nurtured him in the womb and then when he was out of the womb, she was the one who, who nursed him and she was the one who swaddled him and she was the one who comforted him. She was the mother of the Son of God and that is a great honor and a great blessing. Of course, 
course, it doesn't mean that she's another mediator or that she's a co-redeemer or that she's the queen of heaven or any other such title like that, but she is the most blessed, the most favored, the most honored and privileged of all women for the role that she was given in bringing God's son, who is also her son, into the world. And that is profound. But what is profound here is how the Bible does not shy away at all from very firmly, very clearly, very unmistakably affirming the full personhood of these preborn boys. They're people. They're doing what people do. One is leaping for joy, and the other is actually being worshipped as my Lord. And so God, who knits us together in our mother's womb, God who creates life, has created this child, these two boys, one to be the forerunner and the other to be the Messiah, and has given them to his people and is being recognized in their role even before they are born. And the recognition of that and the reception of that is faith. That is true faith. John the Baptist is showing true faith, even in the womb. It comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth is showing true faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. Mary is now demonstrating this true faith in how she responds. Where does it come from? Where does true faith come from? From the Holy Spirit, who empowers us to respond to the word of God with a yes and an amen. And that means something, because that means we don't take credit for our faith we don't think that our faith makes us a better person, but it does make us better off. It does make us more blessed, more, more favored by God, and we should be profoundly thankful for that. It's not that we were smart enough or clever enough to figure it out, because little John the Baptist in his mother's womb isn't gonna, you know, isn't gonna do a lot of rational uh, comprehending of things, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, he has and demonstrates faith. Faith is not something we produce, and it is certainly not something that we produce in order to tell God what we think he should do. Within Christian circles, that's one of the, one of the biggest distortions of faith, is the idea that you can somehow manifest something in your life by your faith. You know, you can, you can create prosperity, you can create health, you can create a bright future you can create by your faith. And our world, our world loves that because it puts us at the center and it makes us, you know, the sovereign ones who are making things happen because we believe. No, God's the one who makes things happen and we receive it by faith and that faith is a gift of God's grace. Well, this encouragement from Elizabeth and from John is exactly what Mary needed confirmed her faith, it encouraged her, it strengthened her, and she responds with this beautiful song of praise. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy 
is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's, he's filled the hungry with good things. The rich he's sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. It's a beautiful song of praise. It, it echoes with familiar themes from the Psalms and from the prophets and from Hannah's song in 1 Samuel. It shows, I think, that while Mary is here filled with the Holy Spirit and is inspired by God, she also knows her Bible pretty well. She's been, she's been a student of the Word. She understands the covenant promises. She understands the character of God. We're not going to go line by line through the Magnificat in this sermon. I did in 2016, the Advent series was called Mary's Christmas, and I did a whole sermon on the Magnificat December 11th, 2016. So if you want that, you can look it up on Sermon Audio. You can get that and listen to it. We're not going to take time to do that this morning. But the heart of this, we call it the Magnificat because the first word in the Latin translation is Magnificat, which means magnifies. Magnifies the Lord, my soul does, is how it reads in, in the Latin. And so Mary is magnifying the Lord. And you know, it's always what we see about Mary in the Gospels is she's magnifying the Lord. She's calling herself the servant of the Lord. She's, she's saying, I'm the recipient of God's mercy. I'm the recipient of God's salvation. Magnify the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. And she would say to us, oh, magnify the Lord with me, because she would know Psalm 34 really well, too. So the heart of it is that we magnify the Lord. Why? For his sovereign goodness and mercy in keeping his promises to his people. God here scatters the proud, he brings down the mighty, and he exalts those of humble estate. He fills the hungry with good things, he sends the rich away empty. He exercises his sovereignty over everyone in the world, rich and poor, powerful and humble. He is the sovereign Lord. But as he exercises his sovereignty, his rule over all people, he does so in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers. That's in verses 54 and 55. And that's important because God's exercise of his sovereign mercy is in keeping with and in support of his covenant promises that he has made to his people. Almost 2,000 years before Mary sings this song, God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans to follow him. And he said, in Genesis 12, he said, I will bless you. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And through your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. 2,000 years goes by. And now God is keeping this promise. Through the offspring of Abraham, through this tiny embryo, God is keeping his promise in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. God never fails to keep his promises. God never fails to keep his promises. Some of you are waiting and praying and struggling and believing and trying to believe 
and saying, I believe, help my unbelief. And God is hearing you. And God will not fail to do what is good. He will not fail to show his mercy in remembrance of the mercy that he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So we can plead to him. And we can pray and we can trust that ultimately, just as the world waited 2,000 years for the seed of Abraham to come into the world, so we've been waiting 2,000 years for the risen seed of Abraham to come back to the world and to make all wrongs right and to make all sad things untrue and to bring us into eternal glory and joy. And that day is coming when every eye will see him and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And every promise he's made that is yes in Christ is yours if you belong to Christ and you can trust him for it. You may be struggling. You may be wondering. But God is always good. And he may have us waiting. He may have us waiting a long time, but he will not fail. Well, we've seen here how Mary's faith led her to hurry to Elizabeth's house and then to magnify the Lord for his sovereign and faithful mercy to his people. We've seen how little John the Baptist had such faith by the power of the Holy Spirit that caused him to leap for joy in his mother's womb. We heard Elizabeth speak in a faith that gave her this profound humility and this sense of gratitude and joy at the coming of her Lord and his mother in her old age, she praises the faith of her teenage cousin, and she professes faith in her tiny and yet mighty Lord. At the center of all this activity is the fourth person, the one who was then and still is today, true God and true man, two distinct natures in one person forever. Even as a tiny embryo, he had already taken on our full humanity to fully identify with us in our weaknesses and to represent us before God as our covenant mediator and Lord. What does it mean? It means that the work of salvation is underway. And even in this very earliest stage of the life of our Lord, the work of salvation was underway. And once Jesus had entered into our humanity and begun the work of redemption, he would not stop until all was finished. And so there is an unbreakable chain from this passage where he's a tiny embryo, less than a month old in his mother's womb, to that cry on the cross, it is finished. Because when God starts something, God finishes it. And when Jesus comes to save us, he doesn't stop until the salvation is done. Amen? That's why John could leap for joy, because he knew that the one who had come from heaven to Mary's womb would not stop until every promise of God was fulfilled. How could he know that as a preborn baby? By the power of the Holy Spirit, he said, yes, the Savior is here. God's kept his promise. All of that that his mind couldn't understand, his spirit could rejoice in. That's why Elizabeth was not ashamed to profess him as her Lord. He'd come to set her free from sin and death forever. <coughs> She was humbled and thankful that he was willing to come save her. That's why Mary's soul magnified the Lord for the tiny one whose human substance and subsistence was drawn from her own body was in fact the Lord who had made her and who had come to save her and to bring her back to himself. 
It's a profound truth to carry around in your womb the one who made you and who created everything. There's so much we can learn from this passage. One, one application that we can get is that sometimes, sometimes we confuse intellectual understanding and the ability to articulate that intellectual understanding with saving faith. Now, there are practical reasons why we do this sometimes, because like, as elders, we're called to examine people, right, and to discern whether they have a credible profession of faith or not. But faith does not depend on our intellectual understanding and our ability to be able to articulate that intellectual understanding. Faith is a gift from God by his Holy Spirit. And he sovereignly saves whomever he wishes. And I think this has lots of applications. Some of it, some of the application we could see for um, people who have profound uh, mental disabilities or limitations, who can't articulate faith the same way that we would. And we might think, well, do they have, you know, we might even think, I don't know, do they have high enough IQ? Do they have enough cognitive wherewithal to be able to really understand the gospel and really believe? <laughs> Stop. <laughs> they can believe by God's grace to his glory and to their salvation, even if they don't have the intellectual capacity to understand the way that we would and to give a doctrinal dissertation on salvation because God's grace is what saves us by the power of his Holy Spirit. So there's so much we can learn from this passage, but I want us to think about this as well from Christmas, coming back to this idea of the Christmas miracle and Christmas faith and the way our world sees Christmas. If you were an outside observer, maybe across the street from Zechariah's house, and you just saw in a distance this scene unfolding, right? You probably wouldn't think that anything out of the ordinary was happening. Here comes a teenage girl. She's coming to visit family. They're obviously family by the way they embrace. There's a lot of joy. It's not hard to see why there's joy. The older woman is pregnant. She looks old enough that she shouldn't be pregnant, and yet she's pregnant, so there's obvious joy over that, and they're rejoicing. Simple enough. It seems to make sense. But if you actually got close enough to hear what was being said, you would think, what is going on here? Why is the older lady saying to the teenage girl, why has the mother of my Lord come to visit me? What is this? How does she know that her baby leaped for joy in her womb? And exceeding joy. Babies kick all the time. What's going on? I sometimes think about our culture's approach to Christmas this way. Like, our culture likes to stand at a distance from Christmas and watch it unfolding at a sentimental, safe distance, right? Oh, look, a little baby in a manger. Isn't that cute? Oh, a family, they had to walk so far and, and there was no room in the inn and now they're in a stable and the animals are there and it's just so picturesque and it's just such a heartwarming story, right? But if you get close enough to hear, 
what's being said. The angels say to the shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. For to you is born this night in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. What? This little baby in the manger is the Savior? The Lord? What does that mean? And most of the time, we just say, oh, I'll just get back. Let's, you know. You ever in, I, I was in Starbucks uh, a couple weeks ago, and I heard, I think it might have been, what child is this? It was a, definitely a sacred carol. I was listening to it. I was like, oh, yes, I love it. It's one of the things I love about this time of year. It's the only time you can go out and hear in the stores being played like gospel carols. Like, oh, yes, it's so wonderful, right? And then, like, the very next tune was like, I, I forget, some sort of just nonsense, right? Uh, I don't think it was as bad as Grandma got run over by a reindeer, but it was something like just completely unrelated. I'm like, ah, oh. it's like they got close, they got really close, and then it's like, okay, let's just, let's just, okay, dashing through the snow now time, okay? <laughs> and I love all the winter songs. Okay, I don't love Grandma got run over by a reindeer. One of my Facebook friends, who's a Christian counselor, put it well the other day on Facebook. He said, we live in a Santa baby culture that has an oh holy night sized hole in its heart. You know, we kind of like the festivities of the season, even in weird ways. Santa baby is just a weird song. Um, even in strange ways, right? Wanting hippopotamuses for Christmas, although I love that song. It's just so, right? I do. I do. It's just funny. It just makes me laugh. Um, but they missed the point, right? They missed the point. And so what about us? What about us? We know Jesus, right? Or we're here. At least we've heard about him. Kids, some of you might be in a place where you're like, I've heard this Jesus thing. Every year we do this whole Christmas thing. Got it. But... Are we coming close enough to hear the word of God tell us about this special one, this son of God, the Savior and the Lord, worshipped by angels who causes pre-born babies to leap for joy? He's come as our Savior to save us from what? Really to save us from ourselves. Because one of the things, boys and girls, one of the things that manifests itself quite well this time of year is our selfish greed. All right, got to make your list of what you want for Christmas. I hope I get everything on my list. And we can get a little bit irritable and a little bit pushy, a little bit impatient when things aren't going according to our plan. I know none of you kids have ever seen your parents in a bad mood this time of year. I'm sure that at your house, it's all smiles and hot chocolate. But that, that manifests itself, and we should be reminded, oh, yeah, that's, that's the real reason why Jesus came, because I need a Savior, and I need to be saved from myself. I need to have my sin taken away. I need to be reconciled to God. I need to be brought back under God's lordship and not try to be my own is why I think understanding what real Christmas faith is all about is so important. 
It's trusting God to be God. It's not trying to do his job for him. It's rejoicing at what God has done, not trying to push for what I want done. It's coming to the Lord and saying, who am I (laughs) that the Lord of the universe should come to save me and to leap for joy, at least in our hearts if we don't do it physically, because some of us might hurt ourselves if we do it physically. We leap for joy, and we say, yes, I believe, amen. Praise God for his unspeakable gift. And when we get opportunity, we lovingly, gently, and yet clearly remind people, you know, love hot chocolate, love cookies, love Christmas carols, love old Christmas movies. But the best thing of all is that God sent his son to rescue us from ourselves That's the Christmas miracle. And Christmas faith means we believe that he came for us and we trust him for our salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this time of year. Thank you for the joy and the festivities and the good music and the fun events and the change of pace, the change of weather. But thank you most of all, so, so much more than any of this. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior. He came to give us a joy that lasts forever. The joy of knowing you and being known by you. The joy of loving you because you've loved us first. The joy of being completely forgiven and reconciled to you. The joy of being able to call you Father forever. Thank you. Thank you for our Savior. We praise you in Jesus' name.